0: Good morning, and let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Malachi. We are the last book of our Old Testaments, the book of Malachi, easy to find. Find the last book of the Old Testament. We'll be in Malachi chapter 1 today. Malachi begins with one of the best opening lines in Scripture. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. How would you like to get a letter from God that said that? I love you, says the Lord. As great as the beginning line is, the second line is shocking. The people respond by saying, how have you loved us? After a thousand years of redemptive history, Israel was blind to the love of God. Now don't misunderstand. The message of Malachi is not coming to a pagan people. It is coming to a people who were courageous enough to leave Babylon after 70 years of exile and come back into the land. It was written to a people who had the courage to be with Nehemiah and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Whose spirits were stirred by the prophet Haggai to rebuild the temple of God. These were people who were committed to the Lord. The opinion polls of the day said religion was significant among these people. And yet, they faced the problem. They fell into the trap that faces Our culture today, and that is to trivialize the worship of the Lord. They were tempted and fell into the trap of trivializing the worship of the Lord. Oh, they could still trace their lineage to the great families of faith in the past. They knew the law, and yet the worship of God was not their life because they had become blind to the love of God. They had become blind to the love of God, and the same is true of us to the extent that you and I are blind to the majestic greatness of our God. We will have little desire to worship Him. It will be unimportant and dull and unworthy of our best. But when we open our eyes... To the character and the nature and the work of our God. Worship will become something that is our passion. Serving Him will become our greatest pleasure. And my prayer for us this morning is that our eyes might become even more open to the glory of our God. So that we might give Him the honor that He deserves in our life. And God does that for His people by first in Malachi chapter 1. Causing them to understand the deep privilege it is to be his. Let's read Malachi chapter 1, now beginning in verse 2. God says, Oh, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. And yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we shall, we are scattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. He says, I have loved you. And the blind people say, how have you loved us? And he says, just open your eyes and look around. He directs them first back to twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And you remember that God had promised through Abraham and his descendants this beautiful promise that through them all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And it was Esau who was firstborn of Isaac who had this blessed promise going to be given to him. And yet, for the sake of a bit of a hunger of his stomach, he sold off his birthright to his brother Jacob. And the text says in Genesis chapter 25 that he despised his birthright. Now, that doesn't mean that he hated it. No, as soon as he sold it, he wished he had it back. The Hebrew writer tells us that he cried and he wept to get his birthright back, but he could not. Because what he did is he took the great blessing and privilege of God and counted it as Little significance, not even as important as a good meal. And so from his standpoint, he was treating it lightly. From God's standpoint, he was despising it. But then the wickedness that begins to grow in Esau is then seen in his children who become the nation of Edom that God speaks about here in these verses. Edom, though they were children of Isaac, had turned their backs upon the ways of the Lord and treated their knowledge of God as less significant, not important. And as a result, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah tell us how God punished Edom and threw them away from their land. They were going to be separated from God. And yet, they were arrogant enough to say, ah, it's no big deal, a little spot of trouble just give us back into the land and we'll rebuild everything up and we'll be just fine on our own. God says, try it. And I'll knock down whatever you try to build up because you will be the object of my anger. Unending anger. Those who are not God's people are going to live fruitless lives and face the irresistible judgment of God. And so God says to his people, look around. You want to know if I've loved you? Look what happened to Esau. Look what happened to Edom. They're not around anymore. Why in the world do you think you're around? Why in the world do you think you're back into the land? It is because I love you. And my friends, we live in a world that is afflicted with the consequences of sin. Families and individuals and cultures in this community and around the world are falling apart because people have turned their backs upon the ways of God. And as a result, their lives are turned upside down and their eternal destinies are hell. Does not such a realization cause us To have our bones grow cold, does it not cause us to realize that by God's grace, not our goodness, we have been through Jesus Christ atoned for our sins and brought into fellowship with God. How can we ever say, oh God, how have you loved us when we have taken of the Lord's Supper as we have this morning? to see with the result and consequences of a world that has turned its back upon the Lord. Can we not see that those who have rejected the Lord and His ways are under what God said here is a people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And yet through Jesus Christ, we have been made the people of God. We belong to Him. We are a people who have come to know and see the Lord. And to the extent that we have, we will say, as the verse 5 ends, great is our God beyond the borders of Israel. We are demonstrations of that. Now here's the problem. The problem for us is that it is easy for us to say, I love the Lord. We sing songs like that all the time. We just did. We talk about God's love for us and we love him back. And it's just easy to say those kind of things. What's are supposed to do in a building like this? But my question this morning is this. How do we know we love him? And I pray that we might understand, have eyes that are open to see the love that God has for us so that we might return to him the honor that he deserves. And so what God does for His people, beginning in verse 6, is He begins to reveal Himself to them for who He is through a number of self-identifications, names that He gives His people so that they might know more fully who He is. And as they've come to know Him, they will see His love and respond in ways that demonstrate their love. What this text goes on to say, is that we demonstrate our love to God through attitudes and actions and our ambition to worship Him. Let me try to say that again. This text says the way we demonstrate our love for God is seen in our attitudes and our actions and our ambitions for worshiping God. And we do that when we come to know who He is. Let's read beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying that the table of the Lord may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer these, those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand Will he show, you favor, show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire upon my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised, but but you say, what? A weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what you have taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this is what you bring as your offering, says the Lord. Shall I accept from that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The reality of our love is revealed by our attitudes and our actions and our ambitions and our appetite for worshiping God. One of the reasons why worship is so dry and inconvenient to some of us is because we just don't know the Lord. We're arranged at a time in which we're supposed to honor him that we don't know. And so it becomes dry, boring, and inconvenient. But to the extent that we come to know who God is, worship becomes the means by which we recognize that. And so in this text, what God does is he explains the greatness of who he is to his people. He begins by saying, I am a father. Now, I think if you were to ask most people today, what does it mean that God is your father? Most people would say, well, that means that God loves me and that God's going to care for me, forgive me, and take me to be home. And that's true. And Anything I say doesn't minimize that. It actually establishes that. But if you were to ask an Israelite, what does it mean that God is a father, they would not talk about what God gives, but what God deserves. They would take you back to the Ten Commandments and they would say to you, honor your father and your mother. That fatherhood is about honor and not just gifts. Now, The idea that fatherhood demands honor is not something that is very uh, prevalent in our culture today. Why is that? I believe that it's because for several decades what has happened with fatherhood in our culture is that we have lost the realization that fatherhood is to be a a godly leader who uses his authority and his goodness and his, his strength and his compassion for the good of his children, and he does so in such a way that he wins their honor. Instead, what has happened is that fathers have advocated. They have not fulfilled their role as spiritual leaders in the family. They have become remote They have become chasers of pleasure and possessions. And even in some cases, they have become abusive to the point that children have absolutely no respect and honor for their parents. But that is not the father that we have. The father that we have is one who has earned in every way our honor. And that is why In this text, and he says to the people, I am your father. It is not to comfort them. It is to correct them. If I am your father, have I not acted in every way to deserve your honor? What a change in worship, a perspective this brings to our worship. We don't just simply come to worship to say, oh, look at all the goodies God's given me and I'm going to go get some more. Worship is the opportunity that we come and give our Father the honor that He deserves. And so I'm not caught up in worshiping in a way that makes me feel good and about what I like and about what I want. It is about honoring the Father. If I am your Father, where is my honor? But then He goes on to say, That not only am I your father, but I am also your master. Where is my fear? Verse 6. This name speaks of God's position, God's power. It is a reverence for God because he is the master of my destiny. Just think about what people do for the good of their masters in this world. Think about work. Somebody will say, well, You know, I've just got to give a bunch of extra time at work this week because, you know, that's what the boss has told me. And the client wants this, 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 and this. And so we're just going to have to change everything. We're going to have to do what the client wants us to do. And we wear ourselves out in time and energy and talents trying to please our clients and trying to please our bosses. And God comes along and says, "Whoa, I understand. I see that you realize How you are supposed to respond to masters. Why don't you feel that way about me? If I am your master, where is my fear? This gives a different flavor to worship. That worship is not just a time in which I come for my benefit, but I come to honor a father who deserves it. And I come to elevate the master to the ruling, guiding king of my life because that's who he is. That's worship. He is a father who deserves honor, a master who deserves fear. And this exalted position is further emphasized eight times in the text by the phrase, I am the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. In the Old Testament, host is used to describe armies, angels, and stars. Put it together, and God is the ruler of all of the armies of heaven and over the galaxies of the universe. He is the Lord of hosts. And there are his people, bored with his service, giving him some scraps of time and talent, weary of being inconvenienced and offering lambs that are manged and with broken legs. You know, it's disrespectful to a father not to give him the rightful honor, but it's downright fearful to stand before the Lord of hosts and give him that. The Lord of hosts is a phrase that was popular among the prophets after the people returned from exile. It's used by them more than any other. It's because they are speaking to a people who have come to know the Lord, who had in some way devoted themselves to the work and purposes of the Lord, and yet they had grown weary and dull. They had become weak weak. They had begun to go right back into the worldly ways of living. And what they want the people to see is that you're not just dealing with a nice, sweet little grandpa who will touch you on the top of your head and say, well, oh, bless your soul. You are dealing with the Lord of hosts. And if you thought Babylon was something, and if you thought, uh, you thought Assyria was something, you don't know what you're dealing with. And so he wants us to worship him Right. He says, don't you know who I am? I'm a father who deserves your honor. I am a master who deserves your fear. I am the Lord of hosts. Put me in my right place. And then to go from the cosmic, if you will, to the intimate. Twice in the text, the Lord speaks of providing his table for his people. The Lord's table is provided, verse 7 and verse 12. This describes the warm fellowship that God wants to have with His people in the sacrifice. You see, in the sacrifice, the sacrifice was given to God, and the people ate of the sacrifice in a fellowship meal with God. Sinful humanity dwelled in wonderful fellowship with righteous and holy God, which is exactly what we've just done. And yet, what did they bring to the table of the Lord? But their scraps. Can you imagine inviting a group of people over to your house? It's potluck. And here they bring it in. Ah, rancid potato salad. Half-eaten burger. Right? Some old stuff I was going to throw out into the trash. I didn't want anyway. Here it is. How would you feel about a guest who brought that and put that on your table? You would say, they don't care very much about me. You might even say, they despise me. And that is what God says to his people. When they bring to their worship of him less than their best, They think that God is simply satisfied with the little spare time that I've got, the little talent I can give. That should be enough for the Lord. The meal that we take each week, in which we remember not a sacrifice of an animal, but the Son of God Himself, is called in Corinthians the table of the Lord. It is called the Lord's Supper And how do we think that God feels when we bring to that table a bored, divided, and hurried life? I'll tell you what what God thinks about it. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. Whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in in a manner that's not worthy of it, drinks and eats condemnation to himself. That's how God thinks about it. What is worthy of the Lord? What is worthy of His table? When we understand that in worship what we are bringing is we are laying it on the table of the Lord, we bring to Him then our finest and we bring to Him our fullest. And service becomes our pleasure and worship becomes our passion. Oh, how God wants us to open our eyes and see Him for who He is. I am your Father, honor me. I am your Master, fear me. I am the Lord of hosts, elevate me. I am the one who spread out your table by the blood of my own Son. bring your best and your finest. Instead, some, like in Malachi's day, say, Oh, what a weariness this is. You know what God said about it? If you're going to worship me like that, if that's what you're going to bring to my table, I wish somebody would just shut the door. I wish somebody would just close the doors so I don't have to listen and watch that kind of worship. In other words, let me put it this way. To shut the doors into the worship of God is to put someone outside of God. And what God is saying is this to worship me without your fullest and your finest is actually participating in separating yourself from me. Instead, when we see that in worship what God is doing is inviting us into His table, into His presence, we bring Him our fullest and our finest. Yeah, I probably preached with a little passion this morning. I don't know how to do it any other way. I don't know how you read Malachi chapter 1 and turn it into a sweet little sermon. I don't know how you do it. Because what it is intended to do is reach out and grab us and wake us up to be changed by our experience with the eternal God. That's what it's supposed to do. The God who is our perfect father, master, Lord, and host. Well, let's try to end as practically as we can by seeking a way to elevate our worship to God both personally and congregationally by asking a few questions first. May I ask, does my worship cost me anything? I believe the prevailing thought of our day is that worship should not require much of you. That it's absolutely crazy to forego pleasure and fun to go worship. No, worship if you've got time, Have fun. If you've got time, throw worship in there. That's our culture. As Stephen Cole put it, we live in a day of convenience Christianity where people say, things better be fast-paced, entertaining, and make me happier or I'm not coming back. Does that sound like Malachi chapter 1 to you? Did God say, well, you just do what you like? No. But that's what the people did. And God had had enough of it. Giving God what we didn't really need anyway is not a gift. Serving God only when it's convenience is not something you do to your master. Our efforts and our gifts and our plans reveal how much we esteem the Lord. Think about it. Our gifts, our efforts, our plans, they are the statements of what we esteem the most. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, Sacrilege is centered on offering God something which costs nothing because you think that God is worth nothing. We, like David, should say, I will not offer God something that costs me nothing. Does worship cost you something? There's a story I read that's just too weird not to be true. It's about a man who was preaching the gospel overseas, and he got a little box from somebody sending him some old clothes, you know, to try to help him out. And in the box, among the old clothes, was a little jar of used tea bags that the person had used, carefully dried, and put in to send and help the preacher. What kind of gift is that? Used tea bags. What we offer to God, if it doesn't cost us anything, is not worship. And yet, what we seek in worship is convenience. And what God wants in worship is sacrifice. Secondly, who do we want to please in worship? Really, the center of the second oracle is in verse verse 9 when God says, Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. But with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? He seems to say what the heart of worship here is the idea of who you're wanting to please. Worship is about showing favor to God. God, you're our favorite. We want to please you. What ends up happening is that we turn it around and we think that worship is about pleasing me, about what I like, about what I want, and such self-centered approach to worship does not receive the favor of God. It may be pleasurable, but it does not get the pleasure of the one we seek to please. Thirdly, ask yourself, do I think worship is boring? Well, if worship is about the Lord, and I'm not passionate about the Lord, then worship's going to be boring. We're going to say, as they did, oh, what a weariness this is. Because worship is just not worth the effort, at least not worth much effort. But when we come to know what worship is about, about the serving and glorifying, exalting the living Lord. Worship can be nothing. Can be, it cannot be boring. The living Lord is not boring. And to worship him rightly is not a boring activity. But let me end simply with this thought. And that is that ultimately God is going to be worshiped rightly. Five times in this text it says the same thing that my name will be great among the nations. Five times, my name is going to be great among the nations. And what God is saying to his people is this. He says, all right, if you're not going to worship me, then I'm going to go find somebody who will. And he did. And that promise, look at it, so beautiful in verse, four, uh, verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name, and pure offering, my name will be great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts. One of the great Old Testament promises, that the worship of God would spread way beyond the weak, inadequate worship of Israel, and it did. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2 when all of the nations were invited to come and worship the Lord. And that's what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus returns. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All the nations finally recognizing the worship that God deserves. And until that time, he looks at his people and says, will you worship me like that now? Or are you going to be among those that when the Lord Jesus comes are going to worship because you have been condemned, because you have been separated, and you finally recognize too late who your Lord is? Do we have eyes to see he who we worship? How beautiful he is, how majestic, how glorious, how worthy he is of our first, our finest, and our best. May we be among the people who worship him now and that he wouldn't say, shut the doors. I'll go find somebody who will. If you need to respond to the gospel, we'd love for you to do that as we stand and sing together.